Subliminal SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF.
ancient preacher, spiritual pride. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair. It may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody.
mercy on me.
plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon. Fireball of lightning, it shook all our hills. Are these Chicanos all scattered like dry leaves? The radio tells us they're just deportees. This is the B, and it's Saturday morning, so this must be Labor and Love Radio, and indeed it is. We got it on the first try. This is the, the show where we tell you how it is. Brought to you by Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, a community arts center in the mission like no other. Come on down to Mutiny. And this is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And yeah, we'll talk about it. If there, would, if there was anything wrong with work, they wouldn't give us so much of it. Okay, some famous labor leaders said that. Why do they want us to work? Well, our work makes them rich. Of course, they don't want you to strike. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to have health care or any of those other benefits. Because your work is making them rich. If you stop working, they stop getting rich. If you want a health plan at your work, they're against it because it 
because it's going to cut into the profit. At any rate, I want to play one more song here before we get started. You probably know this one. who's got a birthday today. Happy birthday to you. Yes, indeed, it's my birthday. Not exactly today, but pretty soon. That was the the birthday song by the Beatles' uh, Paul McCartney band. Maybe George Harrison was in there with him. Um, it was recorded in 2008, probably longer ago than that. Um, you say it's your birthday. Well, it's my birthday too, yeah. And today what I'm going to play is from the top 25 of songs that we've had on this show. Uh, and we'll work it down. We'll see which ones are the best and which ones are the best labor songs. Labor and Love Radio. Labor Opinion. Labor History. 
current labor action, what's going on now, you'll hear it all. We'll hear um, Radio Labor, our World Labor Report of labor actions going all around the world. Remember, you're never alone if you stand up for something. Well, it's also the birthday of Mexico. This is Mexican Independence Day this weekend on the 16th of September in the year 1810. We'll get on with it. Why this is not, this is not Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. <clears throat> Right to work. We hear a lot about right to work, huh? Right to work. That sounds good. Well, right to work is actually an anti-union device which was invented to, in order to preserve the racial balance in the South, quote-unquote balance. In other words, the segregation of blacks and whites under white power. And right to work comes right out of that tradition. What's going on at Kaiser? Kaiser workers have voted to strike. What are some of the issues involved there? Well, here, part three, part two of Fred Glass's California labor history spanning the early 20th centuries. We'll go on the labor beat. Is there anything as such a, a good billionaire? A good billionaire? That's a hard one. And we'll have we'll have commentary from the two Francescas. Who was T Bone Slim? A labor hero who's been effectively written out of of our history. Our opening set there. Let's go back and review that. Of course, we had the Beatles birthday song. And um, Joan Baez with Woody Guthrie's song, Just Deportees. We play it a lot on this show, but <clears throat> its significance is far beyond uh, that plane wreck in Los, Los Altos, California. Playing wreck at Los Gatos. Man. Um, because it talks about how immigrant workers are dying in our deserts, in our valleys, on the fields. So, all that and much, much more on labor and love. The radio... Show where we tell you how it is. And let's start out with radio labor. This is the World Labor Report of what's going on around the world. News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor Report recorded on Friday, September 13th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, lab-grown meat and the effect on unions. The UK's Labour Party promises widespread collective bargaining. 
The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing. This is Radio Labor. Labor organizations in the agricultural sector are growing increasingly concerned about the introduction of products which mimic meat and other proteins such as fish and dairy because of the environmental and labor effects. One such organization is the International Union of Food, Agricultural, Hotel, Restaurant, Catering, Tobacco and Allied Workers Associations, which operates under the acronym IUF. The IUF recently commissioned a study on the issue issue, which was produced by the ETC group. I spoke to one of the researchers on the project. Elizabeth Abergel is a professor of sociology at the Université du Québec à Montréal. I started my conversation with Ms. Abergel by asking her why the agricultural industry was so interested in the production of plant-based mimics of meat and other proteins. There's a lot of interest in these proteins, in these plant-based proteins, because the industry is looking for ways to solve several problems at the same time. And these are problems that are often associated with industrial agriculture. And the claim is that these plant-based protein industries will disrupt the meat industry. So they want to replace meat because the meat industry is seen as contributing to greenhouse gases. So they make environmental claims that plant-based meats will produce less CO2, they will be kinder to the environment. They will also provide seafood and fish alternatives because of ocean depletion. So there's a big environmental reason for uh, producing these meats. The second one is the animal suffering and the treatment of animals. So there's a general concern identified as problematic with a certain segment of the population, which is concerns animal ethics. And, of course, it's hard to uh, disagree with that. And then the third concern is regarding health. There's a perception that consumers want plant-based meats. There's a demand for these products because they are seen as being clean, meaning that they don't contain antibiotics, uh, hormones, or they don't carry bacteria and diseases, which the uh, meat industry is often associated with. And so the health claims are the ones that are generating the most buzz as far as consumers are concerned. However, I think we have to say that the use of protein isolates from crops like peas or soy and their transformation and processing into what looks, feels, and tastes like a meat patty or hamburger requires many different steps which involve the addition of uh, many new ingredients in order to make it look and feel like a, like a real burger. And so this ultra-processing really does pose a question about the health status of these plant-based meats because we don't know what the long-term effects of these added ingredients are when the meat is cooked, for example, or the, meat, uh, the plant-based meat is cooked. We also don't know what happens when, for instance, you are using these products together. I mean, individually, they might seem like they're good ingredients, that they may add something to the patty. But when they work together and they're transformed through cooking, we really don't know what happens. Should unions and their members, especially in the agricultural sector, be worried about the rise of lab-grown meats? The industry is making a lot of claims about creating jobs because they are in a growing period at the moment. But 
really difficult to say how how the food industry and especially food industry workers and unions will be affected by this industry. At this time, I don't think that the concern is very high because, as I said, it's still a relatively emerging industry. So, uh, again, I'm not sure how that's going to impact the unions and the workers, but there definitely are going to be some some changes. The industry also claims that they're going to be creating lots of jobs. But, again, what kinds of jobs are we talking about? It's not clear. I mean, I know Impossible Foods and Beyond Burgers are now catering to fast food companies. So are these going to be mostly service uh, jobs or, you know, even in their factories? How is that going to out. It's really uncertain at this point. I'm proud that trade unions and the Labour Party are working as closely together now as we ever have. Because together we are one movement, the Labour movement, the greatest force for progressive change this country has ever known. Let's be proud of our movement and proud of the changes we can and will bring about. That is Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. He was speaking to delegates attending the National Conference of the British Trades Union Congress, the TUC. The Labour Party was founded in 1900 as an extension of the trade union movement. Over the years, though, it moved away from the Labour movement to support more centrist political action. However, the current Labour Party, under Mr. Corbyn's leadership, seems determined to move more towards the needs and goals of the country's labour movement. Change is coming, and it must be change that gives power to the true wealth creators, the workers. So today we're announcing that the next Labour government will bring about the biggest extension of rights for workers that our country has ever seen. We will put power in the hands of workers. We'll give workers a seat at the Cabinet table by establishing a new Ministry of Employment Rights. At the core of its work will be rolling out collective bargaining across the economy, sector by sector. is a system they have in many of the most successful economies around the world. It prevents undercutting on wages, fosters workplace stability, and encourages businesses to invest in productivity. It's only by acting together, collectively, that workers can really make their voice heard. We will put workers on company boards and give the workforce a 10% stake in large companies, paying a dividend of as much as 500 a year to each employee. (laughs) Nothing scary about trade unions, however hard the billionaire-owned media tries to paint them as such. They are the country's largest democratic organisations, rooted in the workplace and indeed in the communities. Why should democracy end when you walk into work? Why should the place where you spend most of your day sometimes feel a bit like a dictatorship? If, 
as an individual, you're asked to work in conditions that are unsafe, what choice do you have? It's take it or leave it. But as part of a union with strength in numbers, you can demand a safe working environment. I want to say this to everybody who's watching beyond this hall. If you're feeling powerless about your work situation, take action now, today. Join a trade union. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. Our top story sections included links to coverage of the call for workers to join in the global climate strike on 20 September, new attacks on teachers' unions in the Philippines, and calls for the government of Pakistan to honor the ILO conventions and ensure respect for basic labor rights. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Jordanian teachers who were facing police violence on their picket lines, British Airways pilots who were trying to get back some of the wages they lost when the airline was facing bankruptcy, Peruvian miners struggling for a living wage, the male Jamaican football team, which just wanted to be paid the wages owed them, and the women players who just wanted to be paid, period, Bolivian mine workers, municipal employees in Brazil, and Spanish pizza delivery riders paid less than the minimum wage. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by retail workers in New Zealand and public transport workers in Paris. Walkouts caused by ongoing government austerity policies are underway in Bosnia, where 200 workers occupied a state-owned mine and started a hunger strike over unpaid wages. Attacks on basic labor rights provoked responses, including a walkout by Haitian healthcare workers when their employer refused to recognize their union, more strikes and protests over legislation limiting the right to strike in Costa Rica, and a strike by 120 Palestinian food workers that started when their employer refused to recognize their union and stop harassing union members. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about the imprisonment of yet more women trade union activists in Iran, strikes by hotel room attendants in major French cities, and the, the Me Too movement amongst Bangladeshi garment workers. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about attacks on emergency medical workers in the United States, in Australia, Uruguay, South Africa, India, and Kenya, and how farmers and unions are working together to save agricultural safety regulations from being rolled back in Australia. Currently, Labor Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the British union group The Workers with Let's Work Together. 
International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
set <clears throat> first we heard radio labor and their labor report <clears throat> with the message if you have problems at work if things are really bad at your job join a labor union join a labor union Why don't they want us to know about labor unions? Why don't they want us to join labor unions? Here's some lies that they'll tell you. This is Robert Reich running down the lies that people tell about labor unions. Wealthy corporations and their enablers have spread five big lies about unions in order to stop workers from organizing and to protect their own bottom lines. Know the truth. Lie number one, labor unions are bad for workers. Wrong. Unions are good for all workers, even those who aren't unionized. In the mid-1950s, when a third of all workers in the United States were unionized, wages grew in tandem with the economy. That's because workers across America, even those who were not unionized, had significant power to demand and get better wages, hours, benefits, and working conditions. Since then, as union membership has declined, the middle class has shrunk as well. Line number two, unions hurt the economy. 
Wrong. When workers are unionized, they can negotiate better wages, which in turn spreads the economic gains more evenly and strengthens the middle class. This creates a virtuous cycle. Wages increase, workers have more to spend in their communities, businesses thrive, and the economy grows. Since the 1970s, the decline in unionization accounts for one-third of the increase in income inequality. Without unions, wealth becomes concentrated at the top, and the gains don't trickle down to workers. Lie number three, labor unions are as powerful as big business. Wrong. Labor union membership in 2018 accounted for 10.5% of the American workforce, while large corporations account for almost three quarters of the entire American economy. And when it comes to political power, it's big business and small labor. In the 2018 midterms, labor unions contributed less than $70 million to parties and candidates, while big corporations and their political action committees contributed $1.6 billion. This enormous gulf between business and labor is a huge problem. It explains why most economic gains have been going to executives and shareholders rather than workers. But this doesn't have to be the case. Line number four. Most unionized workers are in industries like steel and auto manufacturing. Wrong again. Although industrial unions are still vitally important to workers, the largest part of the unionized workforce is workers in the professional and service sectors. Retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, teachers, which comprise 59% of all workers represented by a union. And these workers benefit from being in a union. In 2018, unionized service workers earned a median wage of $802 a week. Non-unionized service workers made an average $261 less. That's almost a third less. Line number five, most unionized workers are white, male, and middle-aged. Some unionized workers are, of course, but most newly unionized workers are not. They're women, they're young, and a growing portion are black and brown. In fact, it's through the power of unions that people who had been historically marginalized in the American economy because of their race, ethnicity, or gender are now gaining economic ground. In 2018, women who were in unions earned 21% more than non-unionized women. And African-Americans who were unionized earned nearly 20% more than African-Americans who were non-unionized. Don't believe the corporate lies. Today's unions are growing, expanding, and boosting the wages and economic prospects of those who need them most. They're good for workers and good for America. Okay, Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under uh, Bill Clinton, I believe, in Clinton's first uh, first administration. What about billionaires? Are all billionaires bad? Are they bad? What's wrong with them? There must be some good millionaires, huh? Let's ask... Francesca won. Do those 
good deeds make up for their incredible amount of wealth? I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of News Broke, we're looking at myths about so-called benevolent billionaires. It's a hard time to be a billionaire. As if maintenance costs on your Gulfstream weren't high enough, the failures of capitalism mean your disproportionately large slice of the pie has you looking like a snack. Look at Bezos. He's such a snack. We should eat him. No, really. We should eat the rich. There are more billionaires now than there have ever been in history. And together, they're worth $8.7 trillion. Some people are so enamored with the idea of extreme wealth, they talk about billionaires like they're talking about the Backstreet Boys. Who's your favorite billionaire in America? Bernie hesitated like he was asked, what's your favorite cancer? Uh, prostate. But the tide of popular opinion is turning against billionaires, as extreme inequality is putting a spotlight on extreme hoarding. Some see such exorbitant wealth as a flaw in our economic system and think that we should abolish billionaires. And that kind of criticism has got some ultra-rich feeling ultra-fragile. Do you agree that billionaires have too much power in American public life? The, the, the moniker billionaire now has become the, the catchphrase. I would rephrase that and I would say that people of, of means have been able to... Whoa, 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 whoa. People of means? Do the rich think that billionaire is their N-word? Only we're allowed to call each other that. And always with a soft R. Billionaire. Whether or not billionaires should exist, they do. And some are giving back. So let's look at those not immoral billionaires, the ones who claim to be good. We're told they're self-made, that many believe in paying higher taxes, and that they all give to charity, claims that we're going to dive into. Before we do, let me say there are plenty of unrepentant asshole billionaires completely unconcerned with appearing benevolent. The Koch brother who made their money by ravaging the earth and then helping deny climate change. Hedge fund manager Robert Mercer, who helped fund Trump, Brexit, and Breitbart News. And billionaire Rupert Murdoch, who's the head honcho of Fox News. The top dog, the big cheese, the grand wizard, if you will. Unlike our child heir of a president, the good billionaires are, well, actual billionaires, and are often referred to as being self-made. Bill Gates, self-made man. Warren Buffett, self-made man. Named the youngest self-made billionaire by Forbes magazine. We have a number of self-made. They didn't get it from family. They did it on their own. You're a billionaire or whatever you are, a millionaire or whatever. But it's like, you're self-made. Millionaire or billionaire or whatever? Look at how salty Bloomberg is about that lack of distinction. Release the hound or whatever. These are smart guys with good ideas. They probably didn't kill anybody to get to the top, and unlike certain so-called self-made billionaires, Zuckerberg's butt is real, if you must know. But take Bill Gates, the billionaireist of the billionaires, who is often commended for being one of the good ones. He didn't exactly play by the rules. During his time at Microsoft, the company was found guilty of violating antitrust laws and putting an oppressive thumb on the scale of competition in order to secure its status as a monopoly. Over the years, the company has paid hundreds of millions in settlements and narrowly avoided being broken up. Never mind Microsoft's murder and cover-up of Clippy the Virtual Assistant. Clippy knew too much. And he started talking, didn't he? Didn't he? Or take Tom Steyer, another one percenter presidential candidate. He's a former hedge fund manager who says he cares deeply about the climate. The climate proposal that I put out about two weeks ago, it is the most aggressive climate proposal by far 
in this campaign. Yet part of why he's a billionaire is thanks to his firm bankrolling projects like coal mines in countries like China and Indonesia. Apparently, since getting an investment, those mines are now producing 70 million more tons of coal. And as late as 2014, Steyer was still a passive investor despite his claims of divestment. On top of that, Steyer wastes millions on nationwide impeachment ads when he lives in Nancy Pelosi's district. Just leave a severed horse head in her bed with a note that says impeach like a normal person. As for Mark Zuckerberg's self-made status, we've all seen the social network. We know he stole the idea for Facebook, just like he steals our data every day to rake in even more money. You didn't make you, Mark. My mom clicking on face cream ads did, and she regrets it. Zuckerberg calling himself self-made is like Frankenstein's monster saying, Actually, me self-made monster. Economist and former Bernie Sanders advisor Stephanie Kelton busted the myth of self-made billionaires when she wrote, No one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. You take it from your workers. You plunder it from the environment. You strip it using patent protections. And she's right. Calling someone a self-made billionaire is kind of like calling someone a self-made Everest climber. I am totally self-made. There were no ropes, no harnesses, no three Sherpas who carried my stuff to the top. Well, two now. Good billionaires claim they want higher taxes. And yet, when a hint of a 70% tax rate was floated by AOC on people with income of $10 million or more, some got nervous. I I think you can make the tax system uh, take a much higher portion from people with great wealth. 70%? 70%? The applause meter has spoken, Bill. These great fortunes were not made through ordinary income, so you Mm -hmm. probably have to look to the capital gains rate Mm -hmm. and the estate tax. Bit of a deflection, but on one level, Gates is right. Capital gains are basically where a corporation can deduct nearly every expense they have. Salaries, investments, even debt. An estate tax law allows a parent to give a child up to $11 million tax-free. Add to that dividends, which are payments to shareholders that have a fixed tax no matter how large the payout. And billionaires are basically able to play the financial system by using their money to make even more. That's why, for example, Bernie Sanders' 2016 plan wanted to double taxes on capital gains and dividends and raise investment income tax to 10%. So how about it, Bill? I think that's a great debate. Mm -hmm. I think if you go so far as to say that there's a total upper limit, that that might have more negatives than positives. But, you know, I I may have a distorted view of this. Probably a little distorted, Bill. Where the f*** is Clippy? Maybe we shouldn't ask the billionaires what their tax rate should be. That'd be like asking Panda Express to give itself its own health score. Four bamboo shoots and a raisin? Those aren't even numbers! But Gates' warning about a negative impact almost sounds like a threat. We know that the wealthy have offshore accounts and many accountants to find and exploit every tax loophole. Microsoft itself, which Gates still holds shares of, has avoided paying billions in taxes around the world by juggling profits between different countries. So if Gates is so woke on taxes, is he in favor of closing those corporate loopholes that he's used? Or will he find even more ways to evade? What about Warren Buffett, who was actually Bernie's answer to that very dumb question earlier? I think Warren Buffett has said some decent things. When when you have a billionaire who talks about raising taxes on the rich, 
I think he deserves some credit. Sure, Buffett has famously argued for more taxes on the wealthy, saying that he and his, quote, mega-rich friends can afford it, which is such a big humble brag. Me, Elon, Oprah, and the rest of the Illuminati rich people are happy to pay more in taxes before we blast off for Elysium. Bye-bye. But like Gates, when pressed, Buffett warns against doing too much to disrupt a system that has worked out really well for him. The inequality gap has widened and will continue to widen unless something is done about it. But I also believe that the most important single thing is to have more golden eggs to distribute around. Uh, so I don't want to do anything to the, to the goose that, that lays the golden eggs. And we've had the goose that lays more and more golden eggs over the years. Sure, and for every golden egg, there are 10,000 balls of duck Oh, look! Mine's got a sunflower seed! What about charity? Good billionaires give to charity, right? And yet, charity is often what shields the ultra-wealthy from agreeing to any structural change. Listen to Michael Dell of Dell Computers balk at the idea of more taxes. There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, mm -hmm with more taxes. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I haven't laughed this hard since the help slipped on a Fabergé egg and fell into the pool and drowned. <laughs> My wife and I set up a foundation and I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. Wow. Dell's basically saying that he can do more through private philanthropy than any democratically elected government could ever do through taxes. And he's not alone. Many billionaires boast about their generous donations. But the gesture is as generous as it is self-serving. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates started the Giving Pledge, a billionaire's promise to give away most of their wealth over their lifetime. Over 170 billionaires have signed it, including Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. But the pledge doesn't specify how or in what time frame to give away your wealth. So you could give it to public health programs like Bill and Melinda, or to a fancy new wing at your alma mater, or use it to buy portraits of yourself. Either way, press is good and no one really follows up. Plus, billionaires have gotten really good at using charity to dodge taxes. They donate to something called donor-advised funds, which allow them tax breaks and more control on how the money's invested. And they donate in stocks, not cash, for yet even more tax breaks. The highly publicized Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was promoted as the Facebook founder giving away 99% of his wealth, was actually, as one reporter put it, an LLC, where he moved his wealth from one pocket to another. But forget tax incentives. Donations help the wealthy maintain power. Think about it. You not only get to put your name on hospitals, schools, museums, and fancy foundations of your choosing, but you potentially also have influence over what those institutions do. Also, if you think about it, celebrating billionaires who plaster their names all over buildings is kind of how we got into this mess to begin with. According to one author critical of philanthropic giving, donating can actually just reinforce a broken economic system. A lot of the elite helpfulness in our time is part of how we maintain the hoarding. We do giving in ways that protect the opportunity to keep taking. And we seek to change the world 
in ways carefully chosen to not change our world. Charitable donations from benevolent billionaires often end up being stopgap measures or pet projects for issues that need real solutions. Part of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was handing out grants to the tune of $3 million to aid the housing crisis in Silicon Valley, a crisis Facebook absolutely exacerbated. It's a bit like an arsonist holding a bake sale for his local fire department. I just wanted to give back. Billionaire Richard Branson once pledged $3 billion to fight climate change that he never delivered on, and instead turned around and expanded his North American fleet of airliners. And then he took Obama kite surfing while we were in the death grips of the first month of the Trump administration. So f*** you again. Billionaires are inherently terrible people, and many have done good things. But at a time of massive inequality, shouldn't they give up a whole lot more? When Buffett, Bezos, and Gates own more wealth than the bottom half of the country, you have to ask yourself, how moral is it to have that much at all? Even if you had Romneys of children and built yourself multiple theme parks, you could still end world hunger by giving it all up and living in a condo. Maybe it's time to stop lauding the goodwill of billionaires and start seeing them as the reason we've got all this duck to clean up. Thanks again for watching Newsbroke. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Franny Fio. Follow AJ Plus on YouTube. Okay, that was Francesca Fiorentini talking about billionaires and why they're not inherently good. They're not good. They're basically money hoarders. The way some people hoard food, these people hoard money. Before that, we had Robert Reich talking about the five lies about unions that companies and CEOs and uh, the, the 1% tell us about unions and why they're false. Unions are good for workers. Our work makes them rich. They don't want anything to interfere with that. And unions do. Union means they actually have to <clears throat> talk to workers as if they're people. To recognize workers as people with lives. Often not even earning a basic wage, a living wage. And uh, the ultimate goal of right to work. Talk about right to work, because right to work is kind of the banner that a lot of people, anti-union people, have organized around, right to work. In other words, when you go to a place there's no union there. Okay? You deal directly with the boss. And if you don't like the, the conditions of your job, forget you. You're out. If you feel like you're um, oppressed or there's bias against you or you're not being treated fairly, forget you. As right-to-work right laws proliferate, this is labor notes, it's worth remembering that they originated as a means to maintain Jim Crow labor relations in the South and beat back what was seen as a Jewish conspiracy. 
and it talks a tech about a Texan named Vance Muse, whose own grandson described him as a white supremacist, an anti-Semite, and a communist baiter, a man who beat on labor unions not on behalf of working people, as he said, but because he was paid to do so. So basically, right to work means it's an open shop. There's no, you don't have a voice at work, like we say, if you don't have a voice, a place at the table. So you don't have a place at the table at a right to work place. Muse had long made a lucrative living lobbying throughout the South on behalf of conservative and corporate interests or in the words of one of his critics, playing rich industrialists as suckers. Over the course of his career, he fought women's suffrage, worked to defeat the constitutional amendment prohibiting child labor, lobbied for high tariffs, and sought to repeal the eight-hour day law for railroaders. He was part of a committee called Southern Committee to Uphold the Constitution. This was a group they sought to keep President Roosevelt from being renominated in 1936 on the grounds that the New Deal threatened the South's racial order. So there it is. Unions were a project where blacks and whites organized together as workers. To this, this seemed like Vance Muse and his followers, whether he believed it or not, the New Deal was the New Deal was a Jewish plot, in their words, in what they put out. And they said this Jewish group served as the guiding force of the Roosevelt administration. Is it the New Deal or the Jew Deal? The bum deal, they called it. The bum deal that made so many people, that put so many people to work and gave so many people the feeling that they weren't worthless after all. Muse and his allies continued the claim that Marxist Jews were pulling the national government's strings. He changed the membership of this supposed cabal to CIO leaders like Lee Pressman and Sidney Hillman. The association insisted that the CIO was sending organizers to the rural South to inflame the contented but gullible African-American population as the first step to Sovietize the nation. Hughes's co-worker and wife Maria confessed in 1943, Christian Americans can't afford to be anti-Semitic outwardly, but we know where we stand on the Jews, all right. So, the first Right to Work Amendment passed in 1944 in Arkansas. 
And now some 24 states have what are called right-to-work laws. In other words, no unions. No unions need apply. <laughs> so that's sort of, when you hear right-to-work, it doesn't mean that it's your right to work. Of course, you always have the right to work. They want you to work. Our work makes them rich. No, no. What they want is for you to go to work with your hat in your hand, with no organized voice to speak for you. They want you to be out there like in the shape-up at the uh, piers when workers would go out and stand there and wait, hoping that the foreman would call their name or point them out to get work. So read it. It's on um, Labor Notes, The Racist Origins of Right to Work. Vance Muse. It has nothing to do with your work. And here's one. Ten reasons we're against unions. He's go over the same things. And people are saying, I prefer having no power. I love bosses. Unions just want to line their own pockets. Unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, pension planning, higher wages, and sick leave, what have unions ever done for us? There's a woman saying, I deserve less pay than men. There's a man with a hook saying, I wouldn't want the company wasting money on my job safety. Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. I want right to work, along with the right to be arbitrarily fired. That's what right to work implies. Right to work. Oh, right to be arbitrarily fired, right. Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only businesses should get to do that. One day I'll get rich and I'll be boss. Once that happens, I won't want a union getting in my way. And the other uh, two others saying, I'm going to get rich too, me too. Who'd really want more power at work? Really, I mean, who cares about that? Besides, trickle-down economics says that if bosses get rich, they trickle down. They'll pass on some of that money to us. But Labor 411 says, what trickle down? Union pay is up 12% since 1978. Okay, 12% in, what, 30, 40 years? Hello? 
CEO pay is up 940%. CEOs are getting more because of their power to set pay, not because they are increasing productivity. Okay, we're on the Labor 411 website. So, yeah, it's not... It's not that... It's not that things are getting better for workers. Right? They're getting rich because they're taking more of our money. Money that we produce. The average pay of CEOs at the 350 biggest U.S. companies last year came to 17.2 million. That's the average pay. Last year, chief execs got $278 for every $1 a typical worker earned. Trickle down? <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Let's see if we can look at YouTube now. This is a this one, um, Francesca R. Here he is, fearless Francesca Ramsey, is talking about legal immigration. Okay. Why is legal legal immigration? almost impossible. Stop me if you've heard this before. A foreigner moves to America, no wait, he applies for a green card to move to America, and then that takes two or four years, so we've got some time before I get to the punchline. The immigration debate isn't exactly a new conversation in America, but lately that debate has gotten even more heated, what with talk of travel bans and multi-billion dollar border walls. Lots of people have their own ideas about the solution to the so-called illegal immigrant problem, but few realize or care how the immigration process in America actually works. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. For those who aren't in the know, why can't they just get in line to come here legally? Seems like a pretty reasonable question. But this isn't the old-timey days when 98% of people who showed up to Ellis Island were let into the country. Today, America's immigration process is super long and super expensive. Follow me, if you will, through the hellish landscape that is green card land. It's like Candyland, only way more depressing. So you want to live and work in America. There are several ways to achieve this, and none of them are easy or necessarily guaranteed to make you a citizen. First, you've got to figure out what kind of tedious application journey you're about to embark on. Let's talk about a few. If you're from a country with a low immigration rate, you could apply for the green card lottery, in which over 11 million people worldwide each year apply for only 50,000 available visas. Gotta love those less than 0.5% odds. But for argument's sake, let's say you apply for the lottery and don't win. You could file an employment-based application. All you need is an eligible employer in the United States to sponsor you, 
and pay for the application process and prove you're not taking away a valuable job from a U.S. citizen. Don't worry, this will only take like a year to get approved by the Labor Department if you have a master's or PhD, and only two to five years if you don't. Plus, you have to be outside the U.S. if you don't have lawful status. And on top of that, you haven't even applied for the actual visa yet. Isn't waiting for years on Slim Hopes the best? But if you're really special, you can apply for a shiny EB-1 visa. That's for aliens of extraordinary ability. Basically, anyone who's managed to excel in the arts, business, academia, or athletics, and fits at least three of 10 special, special people requirements. Or they've made a cool one-time achievement like winning a Pulitzer, an Oscar, or an Olympic medal. What, you don't have a Pulitzer? Let's say maybe the employer thing didn't work and your Pulitzer was lost in the mail. Well, you could have a family member petition for you, if they're already living in the United States legally. If you're flying solo, your last option is to find a spouse. Just be prepared to prove it's real. Contrary to every 90s sitcom sham green card marriage plot, the whole process doesn't take place in 30 hilarious minutes, but over the course of several months to a year. And you may even have to prove it again two years later if you haven't been married that long. But if you don't have an American Bay? Well, bye! Did I mention the cost of all of this? Because no matter what application you file, it's going to be a pretty penny. A standard green card application costs $1,760, and a lawyer to walk you through the filing process can run you anywhere from $500 to $10,000, depending on how complicated your case is going to be. Plus, there are literally hundreds of different forms that you may have to file, and all of them will cost something. You'll be shelling out money on fees to the government, lawyers, passport photos, biometrics, mailing costs, and so on, all while trying to, you know, live your life. All right, so let's say you've managed to raise the money to pay all the fees and maybe get a decent lawyer. You've gathered all the necessary documents and filled out your applications to the best of your ability. Good job on answering no to are you a terrorist? You win, right? You've reached Green Card Castle. <laughs> no. The Department of Homeland Security, which now manages immigration, is notorious for its backlogged, outdated system. An application can get rejected for all kinds of reasons. Maybe your passport photos aren't the right size, or you forgot to check a box on page 19. And even if your application is perfect, you can wait up to four years for a response, and in some cases, even 10. Plus, if you're rejected after all this, you could face deportation or go back to start in this long and costly green card land adventure. Look, America is a country of immigrants, except Native Americans, of course, and African Americans who were, you know, brought here against their will. Obviously, undocumented immigration is a complex issue, which means there's no easy solution. But maybe before building a wall or issuing highly specific travel bans, we should focus on building a better system for welcoming new folks in. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Okay, there's our Francesca R. with the answer to your question, if you have it. Why can't people just line up and wait? Why can't they wait? Why can't they come in? Okay, the whole process is designed to keep people out now, not to let people in. Forget the Statue of Liberty. They, they want to rewrite the Statue of Liberty. Okay, we've got, um, let's see, very special day if you're a Mexican person from a Mexican family. Very special day for all uh, 
freedom-loving people. El 16 de septiembre, September 16th, that's Monday, is Mexican Independence Day, celebrating el grito, the cry. At a certain point in 1810, on the 16th of September, a priest named Miguel de Hidalgo, well, I'll let them tell it. This is called El Grito, Mexico's Cry for Independence. Grito, Mexico's Cry for Independence. Mexicanos, viva los héroes que nos dieron patria y libertad. Viva Hidalgo. Viva Morelos. Viva Josefa Ortiz de Domínguez. Viva Allende. Viva Aldama. Viva Galena. Viva Matamoros. Viva Guerrero. Viva la Independencia Nacional. Viva México. Viva México. Viva México. Sangrientos combates los viste por tu amor palpitando su ser. Arrostrar la metralla serenos y la muerte o la gloria buscar. Y el recuerdo de antiguas hazañas de tus hijos inflama la mente. Recuerdos del triunfo, tu frente volverán inmortales a ornar. Volverán inmortales a ornar. Mexicanos al hijo de guerra, el acero apretado y el vidor. Maria Morelos took off where Hidalgo left off. 
Se derrama en contiendas hermanos Solo encuentra el acero en sus manos Y en tu nombre sagrado Mexicanos al grito de guerra El acero prestado y el brigón Y retiembla en sus centros la tierra Al sonoro rugir del cañón Y retiembla en sus centros la tierra Al sonoro rugir del cañón Estados del guerrero inmortal de te defiende so la espada terrible Mexican Y sostiene su brazo invencible Tu sagrado pendón tricolor Él será del feliz mexicano En la paz y en la guerra el caudillo so Porque él supo sus armas de brillo en los campos de honor Viva México Muerte al, Muere a los gachupines It's about the Spanish So when you celebrate Mexican Independence Day This weekend perhaps Maybe next week Remember what it is If somebody tells you it's Cinco de Mayo That's Independence Day Correct them we know much more about European history than we do about Mexican history. Find out. Like one organizer said, without Mexico, you ain't shit. And pardon the expletive. All right, let's listen now to Fred Glass. We're looking at uh, part three, early 20s. Come on down. Los Angeles is paradise. The sun shines all year round. Land is cheap. Jobs are plentiful. And if you don't want to work, you can always go to the beach. Just ask Otis. Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times. In addition to shaping the heavenly image of Southern California, Otis is the chief architect of L.A.'s ongoing anti-union campaign. It begins when he breaks his own employees' union in 1890. Otis runs the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, which hires labor spies, imports strike breakers, and creates blacklists to keep known unionists from working. The association receives generous support from admirers like Henry Huntington, owner of the Pacific Electric Railway. Huntington had consolidated his enormous economic and political power in Los Angeles by marrying his aunt, the widow of Collis Huntington, one of the four original owners of the Central Pacific Railroad. The Huntingtons don't much like Otis, but agree with him on the need to keep Los Angeles workers in their place. However, the fanaticism of Otis, who likes to be called General Otis, causes a reaction in turn-of-the-century Los Angeles. The labor movement grows alarmingly radical. Leaders of the Los Angeles Council of Labor, such as shoemaker Lem Biddle, suffragist Francis Noel, and organizer Fred Wheeler are socialists. They believe workers who produce all wealth should own and use it themselves. 
Even the occasional capitalist like Gaylord Wilshire, after whom Wilshire Boulevard is named, becomes convinced by socialist ideas. Working people are listening too. Laundry workers hear the message because they work 12 to 14 hour days without overtime pay. Serious burns from scalding liquid and harsh chemicals are considered part of the work. As in the rest of the country, children in Los Angeles are employed everywhere alongside adults. Since they are paid very little, competition with child labor forces down the wages of adults, too. Iron workers who raise the skeletons of the new buildings called skyscrapers face injury and death each day for the lowest pay in the building trades. There are no workers' compensation or occupational safety laws to help them. Iron workers have to deal with the National Erectors Association, which hires labor spies like Robert Foster. As Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara reports, the association recruits professional thugs to beat up those who attempt to form a union. On both sides, it was war to the knife and knife to the hilt. Responding to these conditions, working people seek solutions. In 1901, women and men organized themselves into the Shirtwaist and Laundry Workers Union. They want a 10-hour day, time and a half for overtime, Sundays and holidays, and equal wages for men and women. When the laundry owners refuse to meet these requests, 500 employees in seven laundries go on strike. The owners are backed by the full strength of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. The Los Angeles Times tells its readers that the laundry workers enjoy excellent working conditions and under no circumstances should the owners submit to union tyranny. As a result, the workers are able to win union recognition and better conditions in just one of the laundries. Nevertheless, union membership in Los Angeles quadruples between 1900 and 1903. You are a streetcar driver working the Market Street line. For 10 hours each day, you observe the new century's marvels like horseless carriages, which only rich men can afford. You roll past beautiful buildings carefully made by skilled craftsmen, but you have no time to admire things. Traffic is intense. San Francisco is known as a union town. The streetcarmen's union alone has 2,000 members. The strongest unions, however, are made up of the craft workers in the Building Trades Council, who enjoy the protections of a union shop as the result of a powerful strike victory in 1900. Each worker needs a union card to work. Each contractor has to hire union workers and use only union-made materials. Any violation of these rules is swiftly dealt with by the council and its Irish immigrant leader, P.H. McCarthy. Women are becoming a force in the San Francisco labor movement for the first time. Facing bullying supervisors, physically uncomfortable workstations, and sexual harassment, telephone operators form a union. They want to defend themselves against work one operator calls nerve-destroying. Some workers have already won the eight-hour day. You hope your commons union can do the same soon, because 10 hours on your feet six days a week is no picnic. Determined to roll back union achievements is a secret anti-union employers association. It attempts to break the Teamsters Union in the summer of 1901. The plan backfires. By the end of summer, more than 15,000 workers are on strike in solidarity with the Teamsters and for a universal eight-hour day. 
Sailors Union leader Andrew Furyuseth is chosen to coordinate strike activities. Waterfront workers in 14 unions shut down the port of San Francisco. Bitter battles rage in the streets between workers and armies of thugs hired by the employers. Unionists are infuriated by collaboration between the police and strike breakers, and by Mayor James Phelan, who turns a deaf ear to union leaders arguing the police should remain neutral. After 10 weeks, a truce is arranged. The unions not only survive, within a few weeks they form the Union Labor Party and elect Eugene Schmitz, leader of the Musicians Union, mayor of San Francisco. For years, most unions followed the political advice of AFL President Sam Gompers, who urged labor to reward your friends and punish your enemies within the Democratic and Republican parties. This policy does result in some labor law reforms enacted by progressive politicians. But the waterfront strike converts San Francisco workers to a new viewpoint. Says Furyuseth, I found that we had a class government already, and inasmuch as we are going to have a class government, I most emphatically prefer a working class government. In 1900, Eugene Debs runs for the presidency of the United States. Known to Los Angeles unionists as the leader of the American Railway Union, he had first come to their city following the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, speaking before huge crowds of workers. During that strike, Debs learned that corporations could force the government to do their bidding against the people. The experience converted him into a socialist and motivated him to run for president. For his running mate, he chose Job Harriman, a skinny Indiana preacher turned lawyer. Calling for restraints on corporations and economic justice for working people, their ticket received 100,000 votes. But the socialist message was just beginning to spread. Harriman had moved to Los Angeles for his health. He soon rose to prominence as a union attorney. Many of his clients were the victims of Otis and the merchants and manufacturers. When Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist labor organizer, is arrested in Los Angeles with his brother under flimsy legal circumstances, Harriman defends him and helps to turn his case into a union cause. General Otis writes in Times editorials that the demonstrations of support for Flores Magón in the Mexican-American community are being conducted by greasers, not of the better kind, of Mexican. Otis is referring to working people such as those who built LA's electric rail system. With the assistance of the Labor Council's Lem Biddle, Mexican workers had gone on strike against El Traque in 1903 and 1904, earning the wrath of Otis and Huntington. We worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes And we slept on the ground neath the light of the moon Due to its socialist leadership, the Los Angeles Council of Labor is way ahead of the rest of the labor movement in extending its hand to workers of color. When farm workers reach across barriers of language and race to form the Japanese-Mexican Labor Alliance, Fred Wheeler convinces the all-white labor council to support them in creating the first union in California's fields. Wheeler travels to Oxnard, just north of Los Angeles. He finds a small town. Its stores and services support the famous Southern California citrus industry. 
But Oxnard is also surrounded by extensive sugar beet farms, beneath the shadow of a massive factory. Built in 1897, the second largest sugar works in the United States, it's owned by the Oxnard family, just one of whom lives within a thousand miles of Oxnard. The Oxnards treat the factory managers well, providing them with large houses and nice parties. Oxnard workers are treated less well, especially the farm workers. Brought by labor contractors from Mexico and Japan to work in the beet fields, they live in places like these. They pay inflated prices for their food and supplies in company stores and work long hours planting, thinning, harvesting, and transporting the sugar beets. Early in 1903, the growers, in an attempt to eliminate the middleman, formed their own labor contracting company. The Japanese and Mexican contractors lose business and workers' wages are cut. Anger helps them to form a union and go on strike. Despite grower-initiated violence reported as a labor riot in the local newspapers, the farm workers stand firm for two months. Few sugar beets make it into the mill. Finally, the bosses back down. With some help from Wheeler, JMLA President Kusuburu Baba, shown here in a photo taken years later, negotiates a settlement restoring workers' pay and giving Japanese and Mexican contractors back their business. Against all odds, the union wins. But its troubles aren't over. Okay, that's um, part two of Fred Glass's history. It's a DVD, actually. We're playing you the, uh, the soundtrack of Golden Land's Working Hands, it's called. And uh, we'll pick that up next week. We're celebrating uh, this week of this month as uh, Labor History Month, as well as my birthday, as well as Dia de Independencia of uh, Mexico. Let's see if we can find... one of the beautiful songs that people write about Mexico. Estoy del suelo donde he nacido Inmensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento Y al verme tan sola y triste cual hoja al viento Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir de Nakahika yori nunu nuni kakuri Kuashatindo ni hakunte iniri Handao yom 
maturi nu andi sotaci kuniri dairi kuniri kuri hatunina kani niri o tierra del sol suspiro por verte ahora que lejos yo vivo sin luz sin amor y al verme tan sola y triste cual hoja al viento quisiera llorar quisiera morir de sentimiento Negotiating table that is on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Remember. Our work makes them rich. They certainly don't want us to stop working for any reason at all. They certainly don't want us to get any share beyond our very lowest of what we earn. Okay. Sylvia Solino. 
who you are. Vita Yemen. Vita. Epo. Are you buddies out there, Mr. Earl Coleman? Hope you're having a good day. Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. Why not make a donation? Mutiny Radio.fm 
Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm. District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm. MutinyRadio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Sam. MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! San Francisco, Mutiny Radio, San Francisco, Mutiny Radio, San Francisco, Mutiny Radio, San Francisco, Mutiny Radio, San Francisco, I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. And I started to do some thinking. I had a really, really good time. Flat black glasses. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. I am a Hello, Blake. Henry. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Nine months ago, a small hand-wrought baton began a journey in John O'Groats, Scotland, packed tenderly into the crusty saddlebags of some adventurous next to her underwear and can opener. At present, the thing is several time zones away, but on its way to San Francisco next month, Friday, October 4th, we will be celebrating its arrival with a party at Moto Guild on Treasure Island. Join us in welcoming the baton and her bearers, the Women's Riders World Relay, to Northern California, making its way back to Europe via everywhere from the furthest reaches of six continents, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Oceania, and on its way across North and South America, igniting a global sisterhood of inspirational women to promote courage, adventure, unity, and passion for biking. There'll be music, food, entertainment, neat bikes to look at, stories to swap, art to ogle, purchase, and people to meet. Everyone is, of course, invited to bring the whole family 
family admission is free, but bring a few bucks for food, bevies, a raffle, and cool stuff from vendors. On Friday, October 4th, San Francisco will be celebrating the arrival of the Baton in California at Moto Guild on Treasure Island from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Come celebrate your love of the motorcycle and the women who ride them. For more information on the party and other awesome motorcycle-related tidbits, join the Dames Don't Care Motorcycle Collective on Facebook. For lots of info on the relay, visit womenridersworldrelay.com. Hope to see you there at Moto Guild on Friday, October 4th with Dames Don't Care. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Been down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. But a night it's different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on and dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be alright. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer, in the city. Cool town, even in the city, dressed so fine and looking so pretty. Cool cat, looking for a kidder. Quiere conocer a Martí y a Fidel. Si quiere conocer los caminos del Che. Si quiere tomar ron pero sin Coca-Cola. Si quiere trabajar en la caña de azúcar. En un barquito se va el vaivén. Si quiere conocer a Martí y a Fidel. Con P. 
corazón Como yo no toco el son Pero toco la guitarra Que está justo en la batalla De nuestra revolución Será lo mismo que el son Que hizo bailar los gringos Pero Si quieres conocer a Martí y a Fidel, si quieres conocer los caminos del Che, si quieres tomar ron pero sin Coca-Cola, si quieres trabajar en la caña de azúcar, en un barquito se va el vaivén, si quieres conocer 